Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. Good morning, Holly. Morning. So uh, I don't know that we'll get to it this Sunday in Ordinary Life, but I know that the next Sunday we will talk about going to darkness and the light. Uh-huh. And um, I just have to acknowledge that uh, last night was a pretty dark time for we Astros fan. Ah, I've recruited you. You put a we in there. I did. <laughs> um, uh, it was. It was like a very sudden extinguishing of a flame. It felt like a yeah. really deflating way to go out of what would otherwise be called a really incredible season. Um, yeah. And it's funny, I read something about um, how those of us who have played a sport and then become a fan of the sport still can sort of relate to that sport in our bodies as we watch it. And, and that is true for mm-hmm. me. So for example, there was a guy on our team, Jake Myers, a young player, rookie, came up in the middle of the season, really go-getter. Like he was playing center field. That was my position. I loved center field. He slammed into the wall during the playoffs. And I think separated his shoulder. And I'm I'm touching my shoulder right now where I think it happened. I separated my shoulder when I was a, a player and didn't have it treated, which was, I think, a mistake on grown-ups part, honestly, people who needed to take me to the doctor. But um as he slammed into the wall, my whole body just felt that, you know? So I just think it's so interesting, the physicality of the way that I relate to this sport. And I really, it would be interesting to observe myself from afar, but I'm not yet individuated enough from baseball to be able to do that. (laughs) Mm. So, but yeah, kind of a underwhelming way to end the season. I was bummed for Dusty Baker. What a great coach and man and player who's been through so much from seeing the league become integrated to being mentored by Hank Aaron, who's never won a championship as a manager. And I just would have loved for him to have that swan song, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, I wish they would make the game shorter. A lot of people do. Being up too late, that's that's something. <laughs> oh, yeah. We're, I'm definitely sleep deprived from the last couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, I don't know about you, but I have gotten a fair amount of really, really positive feedback about the series we're doing on John. Um, that's great. Well, you probably receive most of the communication if it's via email. Um, I definitely have had some lovely conversations with people who have been attending after class. So what have you been hearing? Well, I think people are, are um, they're grateful for one thing to be learning new information. Mm-hmm. I, I, I have this thought this week uh, as I've been uh, getting ready to teach on Sunday, you know, <clears throat> we have said that we are the first generation in the history of the world to know what we do know now about the nature of the cosmos. Mm. You know, what we now know was not 
commonly known when I was a student in high school, even. But now we know so very, very, very much more. And I was thinking, you know, this exact same thing is true about the Bible Mm -hmm. and about the stories of uh, uh, that created the Bible. We didn't know what we know now in the 1940s. Yeah. Um, so we have been able to learn so much more. Uh, grateful. I'm grateful to people like John Dominic Crossan and Bruce Chilton, the people of the, the Jesus Seminar, and but also all these forensic archaeologists that you never hear about. Uh, but now whose work is coming to, to light, who are, who are not studying just the, the accepted sources of biblical teaching, but they're going back and they're studying people's common everyday life, what they're finding in graves, what they're finding inscribed on tombstones mm-hmm. um, and, and other places so that we're getting a history of what life was like during the first century. Um, that we just didn't have 50 years ago. Yeah. And we have all of this explosion of information now. I think about the fact that um, Mark, uh, uh, John Shelby Spong said he read over how many books getting ready to write his book on John? 3,000. Something like that. And most people are not aware that there's that kind of scholarship out there that's available. Yeah. Um, so we're going to get into, um, what is maybe the best known uh, verse in the whole Bible. We may not get to it this week. We're going to get into Nicodemus. And I think, um, you know, people need to know that John Sanford thinks that this was a historical, historically credible event that happened. Hmm. John Shelby Spong says Nicodemus is a fictional creation. Yeah, that's right. That And that's interesting. I had forgotten that Sanford said that he, he thought this could potentially be a historically credible event. I was revisiting Spong last night um, and, you know, I take it as symbolic you know I think I guess that it's always helpful one of the things that this story makes me think of is is poetry and poetry is both concrete and abstract um it uses very real life-based imagery but it also speaks in metaphor most of the time and I think that this is one of those both and we can that is concrete but is also metaphorical and I don't know if I lose too much sleep over whether it actually happened I focus more on what what does it teach us? What about you? Do you think it's important to to know that distinction? Well, you know, I have participated in and with the Jesus Seminar at the height of its popularity Mm -hmm. among progressive people. Um, And I spent years doing that, pursuing the historical Jesus through the lens of the Jesus Seminar, studying their really classic book, The Five Gospels. I spent years studying the Gospel of Thomas mm-hmm. and thinking that, you know, what we what we had, these were words that were close to what Jesus actually said. Now, having said that, I also want to say we can't know. We don't know. 
Um, John was written in the 90s, the ninth decade, 10th decade. So it was so far separated from whatever history might have been there mm-hmm. that it had plenty of time to be embellished and to um, be polished up as a good story is over a long period of time. Right. Right. Well, you know, just kind of going backwards a little bit, when we got into the uh, the story about Jesus's mother saying, hey, Jesus, there's no more wine left. What are you going to do about it? Um, already by that time that that story had been um, created, there was so much mythology surrounding the parentage of Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. And in the same way, so that was, so that was 90 years later. Uh, here we are 2000 years later. Of course, there's spiraling, enormously growing mythologies around, um, around these stories and who the characters are. You know, you mentioned just, you know, we're the first generation or the first, we've lived in the first century of knowing what we know about the cosmos. Um, you know, how, how we mark time now is different than how time was marked 150 years ago in terms of knowing that the earth is 4 billion years old. You know, there was a time all the way up through, I can't give an exact date, but I for sure know up through the 17th century that it was thought that the earth was only 6,000 years old, right? And Mm -hmm. um, so there's that E equals MC squared moment (laughs) of cosmology that tells us, oh my gosh, this is 14 billion years old. It's expanding infinitely. We don't know what existed before that 14 billion year point. We don't know how far expansion will go. And I'm just thinking as you're talking about uh, expanding our knowledge about biblical literacy too, like what is that equals MC squared moment, if you will, in theology and biblical history? Is it finding a document? Is it finding, uh, you know, what, what would you say? Is there, is there a moment like that? Yeah, I think so. I think that the moment that pops into my head would be somewhere around 1945 Mm. with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the um, library at Qumran, Mm -hmm. the Nagamati Library, all of that 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 came to light. And the fact that these documents began to be made available after some dilly-dallying on parts of some very corrupt people to scholars so that they could really see the the documents uh, Mm -hmm. and know what was going on. And also the fact that disciplines began to talk to each other that had not formally been talking to each other so that archaeologists were talking to theologians and theologians were talking to historians. And so there was all this interchange that began to happen around the same time of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So uh, that there was just this explosion of, of information. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I want to talk about some on Sunday, if I can get it into a reasonable format, is first of all, what I see in John, what, what Spong sees, what Sanford sees, what the others that I'm relying on see, is that during this this period when the Johannine community was being formed, it came into existence, there was an explosion of the Christian movement. It wasn't Christian movement. It was a movement of the way in the first 100, 200 years. And there were no creeds. There were no um, 
hierarchies, the ecclesiastical hierarchies. There were these independent groups loosely connected around a vision that they had caught from Jesus about a new community coming into existence, a community that was empowering, a community that was different from the oppressive Roman Empire, a community where people shared, where they loved, where they, it was, that was, that's what happened. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what you see when you read John, you see a photograph of a form of faith that was not a belief. Mm -hmm. It was a faith movement. Mm -hmm. And what happened over a period of time is, and I want to try to document what that period of time was and what happened, is that the faith movement got translated into a belief movement. Yes. Yeah. And then the belief movement got translated into an institutional Mm -hmm. movement. Mm Mm-hmm. We institutionalize Jesus, as our friend Jackie. Yes, yeah, like that is say. exactly what happened. So I think what when people are saying, uh, making positive comments about what they're hearing, is that uh, we're we're trying to step out of the ecclesiastical belief modality mm-hmm. into what does it mean to have faith now, right? And how does this faith impact our lives in a way that makes us contribute to a different world different world order right and 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 i don't want to be fired brimstone scaring people but you know if we don't do this if we don't start relating in a compassionate way just with the earth we're in big bad trouble heck yeah yeah and i think you know there there's been a summit right now going on about how globally we're going to reduce emissions and what is the sort of green plan moving forward uh, worldwide. Some nations aren't participating. Some of the nations that benefit hugely from manufacturing and industrial movements like China, right? So, Mm -hmm. um, and the U.S. has lost quite a bit of credibility in its movement toward a green plan. Um, So it's just interesting because I think, you know, it takes me back to that like E equals MC squared moment. How do we have faith in light of, the very deep question that Michael Morwood asks, who do you ask me to imagine when you ask me to have faith in it? Right. Mm-hmm. And so that we're on this kind of teetering edge of how do we push past this unknown um, and not have to be so sure, not have, how can we deinstitutionalize Jesus and become, we've talked about this over and over again, creatures of consciousness, creatures that act from consciousness consciousness as opposed to look toward a God or a Messiah to save us, right? So often we've looked outward for the answers, looked outward for salvation, looked outward for process. And all of those answers, as John reminds us again and again, are here. We have what it takes to be able to, and that's, we'll get into this in the next story, but we have what it takes to be able to transform consciousness in community. One of the, you, you talk about the EMC squared moment. One of the realizations that uh, it would be helpful for people to move into is what I want to try to describe now. Mm-hmm. Because I think we're on the cusp of a really dangerous time in this country when it comes to authoritarianism. Mm-hmm. 
the, so here's how I want to get into trying to talk about this. When I grew up in the church, one of the things that I heard over and over and over was don't mix politics and religion. Don't mix politics and religion. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, I've said this line before. Uh, one of my professors in seminary said uh, to us, um, now, when you go out there and you're preaching, remember, there are two things that you cannot talk about in church. <laughs> One of them is politics right. and the other is religion. Right. <laughs> Just stick to the behaviors, <laughs> you know. Uh, and and yeah. what people are not aware of is that in the, in the first part of the third century, Constantine became the leader of the church. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Constantine called the first church council. He funded uh, getting organizations and buildings and stuff like that going. He withdrew uh, persecution from the Christian movement. He didn't. Uh, he didn't stop the other cults and and um, forms of worship that were going on. That remained to his successor to do. But when it happened that Christianity was made the formal religion of the Roman Empire, mm -hmm. the Christian church began to look a lot like the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. I mean, the clerics dressed like the Roman senators did. And, and, and so politics and religion have been mixed from the very get-go. Yeah. And if we think of religion as being able to impose or help us formulate an ethical uh, framework for which is what I think it should be. Religion should be utilized to help us grow in consciousness and grow in our ethical relationship to one another and to the world. Then absolutely religion should be infused into politics. Um, religion and philosophy are in, in the same category of thinking, right? What is, what, who am I? What am I? Who, what is my role in this grand universe? And politics sort of regulates how, how we show up. It gives us rules, laws, structures, et cetera. But philosophy and religion are absolutely necessary in terms of designing ethical systems, I think. It doesn't mean that I think our politics should be religious. In other words, we don't need a state religion, but we need the, the philosophies and the cosmologies of religion to help us formulate a higher ethical calling. Um, and this is, you know, we you think about Constantine and kind of Greek society, even at that time, Plato included one of the greatest minds of Western civilization. They were very dualistic. It was a very dualistic um, society. There was a, 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 a heaven, there was an earth, and there was all this conversation about how do we bridge these two. And then, of course, as you say so many, so often that, you know, John is a Jewish mystic, writing from that perspective of non-dualism. Right. And, um, and in this story, we get to sort of distinguish between what was meant between, you know, the, the kingdom of God versus the realm of God. And Spong writes about this so beautifully in, in his piece on Nicodemus, that realm is an invitation into a new way of thinking. Kingdom is a place. Right. Which one won? We still think kingdom. Right. We still think we still have kingdom thinking. Right as opposed to realm thinking, you know? And that, that, that is what happened when the movement moved into the Greek world. You're mm -hmm. exactly right. That's, mm -hmm. That is what happened, is that the dualism began to make itself known. Now, 
I can say what I'm about to say because I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church. <laughs> but the, the Southern Baptist Church was a political, it still is a political designation because the Southern Baptist Church had its origin in the acceptance of slavery as an institution. Mm -hmm. And if you look at what's going on now in the in the public life of the Southern Baptist Church, they still embody a very racist stance, mm -hmm. the disavowing critical race theory and a lot of other things. And I would say that's a very political, a mixture of political and religious ideology. Absolutely. And interesting to note that, out, you know, out of the Baptist church also emerged the African-American Baptist church, right? Which was the seat of social and political change in the South. Right. So I think that that's interesting too, to even look at the spectrum of what the Baptist church represented, you know, from white Southern Baptist church that was very tied with, with uh, racist and, and dominating politics, if you will, and the African-American church, which is all about liberation. <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, I, I it's ev everything, one thing always has, and we'll again, get into this with the story of Nicodemus has a dark and a light. And the question I think is always, which will we choose? Well, we, we also have a choice between um, what I'm going to call muttering or mumbling theology and um, vocal verbal theology. Mm. And uh, mysticism is on the side of the mumbling mute. The word mystic comes from a Sanskrit word that means to put your finger in front of your mouth. Hey. Yeah. It's the same word that we get mutter from. I did that not get know that. mute from. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And so you have people who um, they have an experience of the sacred and they think that they have gotten it. It was even Augustine who said, if you can comprehend it, it is not God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But they, we have all of these people, both political and religious today, who are so certain that they have the truth. Yeah. So certain. Mm -hmm. and, and that, when you would care a real mystic they don't say much yeah and there must be some um space in between of overlap you know because i think we need a mystic consciousness in order to make the changes that you and i are talking about in a social system right a mystic consciousness believes in the oneness of all things not necessarily in tra-la-la, peace and harmony, kumbaya, but in the oneness of all things and that everything that I do impacts everything else. Everything that you do impacts everything else. It's Martin Buber's I, thou, right? So we need that consciousness in our social and political movements, you know? Um, and so the muteness, as you're saying, I had no idea that mystic and mute were of the same etymology. Um, mm -hmm. We don't need that mystic consciousness to stay quiet. Right. Yeah. And, and and I, I want to I clarify, to say that something is mystical doesn't mean that it's not understandable. Right. What right. it means is that it's endlessly understandable, mm -hmm. that you we can never exhaust the, the limits of it. 
Have you gotten Judy Canota's book, Field of Compassion? I, I have it. Yeah. And I've, I've not read very far into it because I'm kind of reading a lot of different things at this moment. But yeah, I, I, I do have it. Yeah. So I want you to read it and then to, to help us all understand what she means by morphogenic field. Mm -hmm. But I think it's what you're talking about is mm -hmm. that she is firmly convinced that what we do in our individual lives affects the whole, mm -hmm. how we think, how we act. Um, you know, it's a butterfly effect. Yes. Yeah. I saw a commercial the other day. I think it was for a bank card. I'm not sure. But it said the tagline was there isn't one way. There is no one definition of what it means to be American. There are 330 million definitions of what it means to be American. Oh, and that's good. It's good. And it focuses on the individualism, mm -hmm. right? If we have 330 million definitions of what it means to be American, how will we ever decide on the sort of commitment to the one, right? And so I, I thought, gosh, how, would, how could we rephrase that? Well, maybe there's um, one whole and there's 330 million parts working together to achieve that one whole, right? But as long as we keep ourselves distinct that I am one, out of 330 million, you are two out of 330 million, and we don't see that these morph morphogenic fields overlap, then we're going to keep that sort of individualism guiding us that will continue to be our religion. Yeah. One of the things that you, one of the things so. that you see um, in the Nicodemus story is um, the deadly limits of concretism and literalism. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's like my favorite line. It's almost like, are you crazy? I'm not saying you have to come out of your mom's womb again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's not what I'm saying, man. You know, I read a, so, I read an interesting yeah. story this morning in one of my Buddhist journals. This little boy goes mm -hmm. to his mother and says, mom, imagine that you're in a room surrounded by ferocious tigers. What would you do? And she said, oh, I would be petrified. I would be terrified. I, I, I wouldn't know what to do. And she said, what would you do? And he said, I would stop imagining. That's wonderful. That stepping out yeah, of that world of the concrete think. and the literal yeah. into something, something else. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, so what, 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 what Jesus in John is doing is he's talking about a new realm of consciousness mm -hmm. and living in a world where we have a different understanding of the world and of ourselves mm -hmm. he's not talking about going somewhere else not talking about going to heaven when you die he's talking about being able to experience that world in the here and now and that's what got the movement started because those people were attracted to that way of life and living and yeah. they, they, did, they didn't have creeds. There's kind of two essential questions I was writing a little bit yesterday. And I think there's more than two, but these are the two essential questions that I arrived at in this Nicodemus story is what does it mean to be born again? And what does it mean to transform from darkness into light? And those, I think are this, that's what this story invites us to think about. There's, um, in our, 
that, I think that this book is endlessly knowable, the book of secrets by Meister Eckhart, but there's mm-hmm. a little uh, meditation poem that references John. I'll, I'll read it. It says, look for it. The Baptist cried in that wilderness, prepare the way. You must know, you must know that the only sure way of removing every obstacle to God comes through poverty. You have to be, have to be naked. Mm. Do you like that book? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. I I can go back and reread a lot of these. But that nakedness, right, is there's the birth image, the rebirth image. Mm -hmm. What what, what, What can we sort of shed from our egoic shell that can help us move from darkness into light? Yes. Well, I think one of the ways that I would answer that is that we move from the experience of shame, guilt, and judgment, mm-hmm. which is what most many, 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 many people have grown up with when it comes to um, the institutional version of Christianity. Yeah. Um, because teachings have been used exactly to do that. What John says Jesus was about in Um, the fourth gospel was not a judgment on human inadequacy but to open people's eyes so that we can see that we are part of who the sacred is and the sacred is part of who we are Mm -hmm. and that Mm -hmm. when we start seeing that in ourselves and each other it transforms our relationships and the the way that we interact with each other yeah it goes back to that ad tagline, seven billion ways to be human, to be one human. Seven billion ways of expressing ourselves. And can we find unity in that diversity? I think, you know, that that's that next step in that ad, right? <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like, and now what? So there's seven billion expressions of us. How do we, how do we hold them all in a single container? Well, you got to figure out how to do that. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, you know, I, I, I know that we may have to go through a great um, disintegration mm-hmm. in order to see the truth of that. Yeah. Chaos often creates more life, <laughs> you know. There is almost always destruction before something is formed. So I grew up hearing people talk about the United States as needing to be very careful because the Roman Empire collapsed, the British Mm -hmm. Empire collapsed. Mm -hmm. And I read on the front page of the New York Times about 10 days ago, um, an op-ed, kind of an op-ed that said, the United States is no longer the global power it once was. Mm, mm, mm-hmm. And that's true. That's becoming yeah. true. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be the single global power. It should be a shared, you know, I mean, we, we all live on this one planet. It should be a shared experience. Mm. We can't rely on the hierarchies of, of nation building and, you know, who's on top and who's on bottom anymore. It doesn't work. And that's the consciousness that Jesus tried to expose to us. It doesn't work, people. You can't have that pyramid anymore. We've got to blow it open. And and it's messy. The process is messy. (laughs) Well, 
I, I hope, hope that we can um, come out a saner group of people. <laughs> yeah, and absolutely. So condolences to all you Astro fans out there. Well, you know, this story, John 316, is a perfect move from baseball season into football season. So <laughs> I have a and, and I'm not a, convinced that the Astros Empire is going away yet. <laughs> I, I have a t-shirt that I wear sometimes that has this God figure on the front of it, you know, the old white guy with the beard and all that sort of stuff. And he's got a football back in his arm, getting ready to throw a pass. And it says Sunday, God's day. Yeah, right. <laughs> all right. All right. See you Sunday. See you Sunday. Okay, bye.